Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the session, Tales from Butte Tables. My name is Molly Krukenberg. I'm the director of the Montana Historical Society. I'm going to take a moment to introduce my fellow panelists this morning. Um, on the right over here, my right, sorry, your left, is Dale Martin, who's an instructor of history at Montana State University, Bozeman, and author of several works on Montana history, including MHS Press book, Ties, Rails, and Telegraph Wires, Railroads and Communities in Montana and the West. And next to Dale is Zoanne Stoltz. She's a reference historian for the Montana Historical Society. Zoanne's career combines her two passions, the people and history of Montana. Her current projects include studies of Montana food waste and Montana livestock brand records. Jan is the humanities and outreach, sorry, Jan Zuha is humanities and outreach librarian. I just assume you all know who Jan is. <laughs> uh, she's the outreach librarian in archives and special collections at the Montana State University Library in Bozeman, where she has been a faculty member since 1995. It is her goal to spread the news and use of archival delights through instruction, exhibits, community programming, and other outreach projects. And at the end of the table here is Mary Murphy, Distinguished Professor of, of History at Montana State University, Bozeman, and the Director of the Ivan Doig Center for the Study of the Lands and Peoples of the North American West. Mary's research these days is all about food in Montana history. So nearly two decades ago, the Montana Historical Society received a gift of about 400 historic community cookbooks from towns across Montana. That group spurred this group to dig into the rich history of food in Montana. Now exceeding a thousand different publications dating from 1881 to 2021, the collection offers an abundant resource for insights into Montana's food heritage. We've spent countless hours over the past few years immersing ourselves in the many ways that Montanans interact with food. We've studied huckleberries, choke cherries and apples, turkeys, wild game and oysters, beer, cocktails and milk, and many, many other types of foods. Our studies focus on how Montanans have harvested local foods like huckleberries and, or bitterroot, as well as importing more unusual food like oysters. The ultimate goal of our research is to produce a book on Montana foodways that explores our food culture and heritage. In the course of our research, we've discovered many great stories of Montanans and food, and we're excited to share those with you this morning. And Jan's going to explain a little bit about our table this morning and our program. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Reader's Theater. If you've never been to a Reader's Theater, Essentially, people just read out loud, and hopefully we do it well so that you sort of enter into the spirit. What we are going to read are all primary sources to do with Montana food, and they're drawn from a number of different places, things like newspapers, cookbooks, uh, memoirs, uh, etc. So, And we welcome you at the end to come up and talk to us, ask us questions about the sources that we've used. Um, the other thing I want to mention here is that you don't usually see an entire tea set at a conference presentation. I think every conference would be better if we did this, but I'm not the queen yet of the world. So we have here my Cornishware, and Cornishware was produced starting in the 1920s in Derbyshire, England by the T.G. Green Pottery Company using traditional methods. And the reason it's known as Cornishware is not because it's made there, although I've read some sources that say that some, the clay was mined at times in Cornwall. But um, this is, one of the sales reps came up with the reason why this is called Cornishware. 
The blue of Cornish skies and the white crests are the, of the waves are what Cornish wear evokes. So for the Cornish in Butte, this might have made them feel more at home. Um, so this is why we have this. We also have some food items up here, uh, what I would call dainties. Uh, we have Cornish honey cake and Irish shortbread. So, uh, you know, at the end, we might even be generous and let you come and try some. I do have some plates up here. We need to be hygienic. But I really appreciate you coming to this. We all appreciate you coming, and we hope you enjoy what we have to read to you. Thank you. Okay. As we said, thank you for coming. I have the pleasure of the first reading. This was a cookbook edited by Ladies of Butte City, 1881, and their premise. Of the thousands of cookbooks in the field, good, bad, and indifferent, theoretical and practical, not one is especially adapted to the needs of cooks in the Rocky Mountains. For reasons chemical and economical, a recipe which is a complete success in the East or South may prove wholly unserviceable here. Our butter is more solid, cakes require smaller cupfuls, our atmosphere is lighter, and beans must be boiled longer. Even our hens occasionally become lightheaded and are faithless to their duties so that the cook who adapts herself to circumstances must use fewer eggs. The ladies who have compelled the following recipes hope to have done a useful thing for experienced and inexperienced cooks. For the experienced in giving them an opportunity of exchange with other housewives and for the inexperienced in placing before them recipes thoroughly tested under the very conditions of atmosphere and market in which they find themselves. Butte Daily Post, April 17, 1905. <clears throat> Mrs. Sam Johnstone, well known in club and society circles in the city, has issued a souvenir edition of her long-promised cookbook. Only 500 copies will be issued, 250 choice recipes will include recipes for cakes, bread, soups, meat, salads, candies, hot tamales, chop suey, oyster cocktails, chili con carne, etc. These recipes are only those used by Mrs. Johnstone personally. The recipes for candies were taught by Mrs. Johnstone, were taught Mrs. Johnstone by a noted St. Louis confectionaire who came to Butte many years ago. She paid him a large sum for a few lessons in candy making. The book is especially suited to altitude, and all housekeepers who have come to Butte from lower altitudes will know how to appreciate that statement. The recipes will call for the use of both soda and baking powder, or either. The style will be in the latest line of cookbooks, and especially suited to the tasty housewife. The book will sell at one dollar. <laughs> Butte Semi-Weekly Minor, April 28, 1886. Two whiskeys cost a pound and a half of beefsteak. Two beers, a dinner of mutton chops. One cocktail, a dish of fresh salad or a head of cauliflower. Yet we hear complaints that the cost of living is too high in Butte. From the Anaconda Standard, November 8, 1920. Although few of the citizens of Butte realize it, for the last 19 years there has been located in the city a factory that has been rated 100% in sanitation and methods, 
and which uses only Montana products in the manufacture of its goods. The Imperial Pasta and Manufacturing Company, manufacturing macaroni, spaghetti, noodles, is located at 401 South Colorado. So impressed was a European importer with the cleanliness of the manufacturing process that he ordered a shipment of Imperial spaghetti and macaroni to be sent to The Hague and one to Italy. This is from Lachlan J. Kelly, the City Health Department Inspector, May 1911. I find the majority of the butchers of Butte intelligent and agreeable businessmen who readily agree to any suggestions I might make as regards to sanitary arrangements. I find a large number of milkmen and their hired help know practically nothing of clean methods of sanitation. <laughs> Left to their own ways, they think of nothing but profits. Therefore, they spend the least possible labor in conducting their business, and this statement pertains to about a third of the dairy farms in Silver Bow County. Kept the annual report of the Railroad Commissioners of Montana, 1917. Complaint filed September 11, 1917. Milk and cream were allowed to stand on railroad station platforms at points of origin and destination unprotected from the elements and are transported in cars unsuitable for the transportation of milk. During the month of July 1917, approximately 3,792 gallons of milk were delivered in the city of Butte in a sour condition. Butte Daily Post, January 2nd, 1918. Montana restaurants, dining rooms, lunch counters, confectionaries, bakeries, meat markets, slaughterhouses, and dairies must be licensed hereafter. New law in effect, January 1st, 1918. Anaconda Standard, August 10th, 1913. The question whether Carpenter John Raleigh's attack of Tomaine poisoning which he alleged prevented him from meeting his monthly payment of $30 alimony to his former wife, was due to eating tomatoes, as he claimed, or was the result of an overindulgence in booze, was the occasion for a lively quarrel in Judge Donlan's courts yesterday morning. The judge wrote order for him to pay. <laughs> Select list of saloons from the 1917 Polk Classified Business Directory. Aluminum Bar, Bohemian Buffet, Brozovich Brothers, Frugoli, M&M Bar, Milwaukee Bar, Mint Buffet, Murphy and McIntyre, Safety First Food Bar, Sullivan and McPhee, Sullivan and Reardon, Sullivan and Sheehan, <laughs> Sullivan and Swanson. <laughs> Tannhauser Bar, Tesla, Three Mile House, Tredinic. From the Works Projects Administration's Copper Camp, Stories of the World's Greatest Mining Town, 1943. A sacred tradition in a town of traditions, the Sean O'Farrell cannot be properly be termed a single drink. It is two drinks for the price of one. A full ounce glass of whiskey followed by a pint-sized scoop of beer. Sean O'Farrell's are reserved for the hours when the miners are coming off shift, 
The whiskey is to cut the copper dust from their lungs, and the cooling beer is to slack the thirst accumulated during eight hours spent in the hot boxes. John Gunther from Inside USA, 1947. I found two eye-opening drinks in Montana that I had never seen before. A black spider is a combination of rum, Coca-Cola, and creme de menthe. <laughs> a Presbyterian is bourbon, ginger ale, and dry soda. Nor had I ever heard a short scotch described as a gazuni, or bourbon and water as a ditch high. I've enjoyed work song 2010. Standing around without something that fits the hand, what kind of a wake is this? Quinlan plucked two glasses from the table. Here, hold these while I do the needful. Reaching into a pocket of his suit coat, evidently tailored for such an occasion, he brought out a whiskey bottle and began to pour back and forth with a heavy hand. Hastily, I asked, didn't I read that Montana voted itself dry? Dry doesn't mean parched to imbecility. <laughs> Advertisement found in the Butte Intermountain, July 13, 1901. That's just right, because it is Butte Brewery Pilsner beer. Palatable, wholesome, refreshing, it tastes just right, and is just the thing for health and comfort these summer days. It is made from select hops and malt with special care through every stage of brewing and is bottled in all its original purity. Delivered in cases at your residence by your dealer or by the Butte Brewery. <laughs> the Butte Intermountain, July 13, 1901. Answer to a lady's letter. Madam, Doubtless your muddy complexion comes from indigestion. At this season, one should be very careful as to diet. Heavy food is hard to digest, especially in summer. You will find best relief in drinking centennial beer at meals. It aids digestion, and that means perfect combustion and consumption of all your food. The beautiful, fair, German complexion is a tribute to the use of pure beer. We're having a good time. <laughs> a few of Butte's ghost signs from brick building facades. At 19 West Broadway, the Creamery Cafe, booths for ladies. At 17 West Mercury, my wad, noodles and chop suey. 146 West Park, looties, groceries, fresh roasted coffees, produce. On two sides of the warehouse at 801 South Utah, Bertoglio Storage and Distributing Company. You'll like Highlander beer. Say hi with Highlander beer. <laughs> at 205 West Park, Butte Special Beer, Montana's Finest Beer. 78 East Park, Sweets Candies, Made in Salt Lake, sold from Alaska to Australia. 
535 South Main, Scandia Hall. Ask for Butte Beer, your home product. It deserves preference. At 803 Nevada, Henningsen Produce Company, on one side, milk-fed poultry. On another side, poultry fattening plant. <laughs> The Street Railway Bulletin, November 1909. The Massachusetts Street Railway Association, after attending the convention in Denver, found a royal welcome when their train pulled into Butte. After a sightseeing tour, they were treated to a novel entertainment. After donning overalls and jumpers, the party was lowered to the 2,100-foot level of the West Stewart Mine, where a banquet was served among much amid much merriment. An interpretation of the menu is as follows. Prohibition cocktails, water. Murphy, potatoes. Calcopyrite a la Little Mary, lamb. Covalite a la Meat Trust, ham. Sericite a la Mother-in-law, tongue. Blasted green goods, vegetables. Payday, dessert. Short fuses, cigars. <laughs> From the Anaconda Standard, January 1st, also 1909. Oswego Lodge, Knights of Pythias, was the host last night at a social session which watched the old year out and the new year in. The banquet was the swell affair of the night. Covers were laid for 200 and every seat was filled. Sauerkraut and wienerwurst were the big things of the feast. Supplementing these were cheese, bread, corned beef, smoked tongue, potato salad, and a long list of relishes and an abundance of the liquid which has made the Butte breweries famous along with those of Milwaukee. Members of the order told stories which dealt with the subject, how glad I am that I am alive and in condition to celebrate the approach of the new year. Montana Standard, March 4th, 1930. William White, the horseradish man, is dead. The sturdy old man with the long gray hair who trudged cheerfully from house to house each winter selling the condiment of his own manufacture to Butte housewives is no more. Death was due to old age and exhaustion. Each summer for more than the past 20 years he went out to his mining claims north of Big Butte to prospect, always with the prospector's hope and zeal that the big find would come today or surely tomorrow. Each winter he would come back to town, bottle the horseradish. He had dug through the summer expeditions and marched bravely up and down the streets. Now, his visits were eagerly anticipated by hundreds of Butte women who were not so much interested in his horseradish as they were to hear with eager interest his tales of the early days. The youngsters grouped around listened with eyes agape to the thrilling yarns of the old figure. No relatives are known, and the old man lived alone, and no one apparently knew much about him or his people. The Butte Intermountain, March 28, 1903. Mrs. J.P. Rao of Missoula was the guest of honor at a pleasant five o'clock tea given on Tuesday afternoon by Mrs. A.E. Hobart. A spirited guessing contest was indulged in and the victorious guesser was Mrs. Rao, who won the prize, a pretty olive dish. 
Dainty refreshments were served, and the afternoon was delightful in all respects. From Mrs. Johnstone's cookbook, 1905. Dainty dessert. Whip a cupful of thick cream and add the beaten white of one egg mixed with a cupful of fine orange marmalade and serve in punch cups with a few maraschino cherries on top. <laughs> Hennessy's Hennessy's Hints for Housekeepers, 1898. Hints for afternoon tea served outdoors. If the tables are on the porch, they may be decorated with sweet peas. Single blossoms strewn over the table on one, on another a basket of peas in the center, the monotony relieved by a few sprigs of honeysuckle. Sandwiches, cream, and cake with lemonade or punch is a dainty menu. <laughs> Daily Inter Mountain, December 7, 1900. Advertisement. Lutie's Fine Teas. We have beyond a doubt the finest line of teas that ever came into Montana. Rather a broad statement, that, but there's truth in every word of it. The immense shipments we have just received are composed of a new crop, young tea leaves fresh from China, Japan, Ceylon, and the Orient. Their exquisite flavor, high liquor, and absolute purity will gladly be gladly welcomed by every lover of the cup that cheers but not inebriates. <laughs> the Butte Intermountain, November 30th, 1901. Tuesday afternoon, a pretty, although strictly informal, tea was given by Mrs. J.K. Clark at her home on West Broadway, the guest of honor being Mrs. J.C. Bellinger. The handsome parlors were filled with a bevy of beautifully gowned women, all thoroughly enjoying the occasion and the delicious tea. The table was very pretty. In the center, a massive cut glass bowl filled with masses of carnations and embedded in a bank of green. From the chandelier just over the bowl fell heavy green satin ribbons ending on either side of the centerpiece in effective bows. All around were scattered with lavish hand cakes, bonbons, sandwiches, and other dainties. The occasion was in some respects a sad one for Mrs. Bellinger, who is very popular in Butte society, and who leaves very soon to make her home in British Columbia. Gertrude Affington, Perch of the Devil, 1914. I shall make tea for you when you come to the surface at the end of your afternoon shift, and you shall sit at the deepest of my chairs. It sounds like heaven, said Gregory, who despised tea. <laughs> From the Butte Daily Bulletin, December 30th, 1919. Advertisement. Miner's lunch buckets. Now listen. Big pasty, piece of pie, piece of cake, banana, jar of sauce, choice of coffee, tea, or cocoa, 30 cents. You cannot beat it in Butte. The Spokane Cafe, 17 South Main. 
New Age Advertisement, January 17th, 1903. See them in Hennessy's Basement Bazaar. They are well and strongly made of heavy block tin with pie and drinking cups. Regular 65 cents buckets you can get now for 25 cents. The biggest bucket bargain, the biggest bucket bargain ever <laughs> bought in you. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to read it. I was <laughs> <laughs> and I practiced. <laughs> Linda Raiha, Oral History, 1993. Some youngsters would hurry to the mine yard entrance at shift change to ask miners for fruit from their lunch buckets. My father always brought me something out of his lunch bucket. It might be half a cookie, a piece of orange slice. It didn't matter. <clears throat> Mary McLean from I, Mary McLean, A Diary of Human Days, 1917. It's a Sunday at midnight, and I've just eaten a cold boiled potato. I shall never be able to write one tenth of my fondness for a cold boiled potato. <laughs> A cold boiled potato is always an unpremeditated episode, which is its chief charm. It's nice to happen on a book of poetry on a windowsill. It's nice to surprise a square of chocolate in a glove box. It's nice to unearth a reserve fund of silk stockings under a sofa pillow. And especially, it's nice to find a cold boiled potato on a pantry shelf at midnight. I like caviar at luncheon, and I like venison at dinner, dark and bloody and rich. And I like Canadian game pie, and artichokes and grapes and baby onions, and none of them has the old gnomish charm of a cold boiled potato at midnight. I can imagine no circumstance in which a cold boiled potato would not take precedent with me at midnight. If I had a husband lying dead in the next room, if I were facing abrupt worldly disaster, if there were a burglar in the house, I should disregard each and all some minutes at midnight if I had also a cold boiled potato. <laughs> I stand in the pantry door leaning against the jam with a tiny glass shaker in one hand and the sweet dark pink cold boiled potato in the other. I sprinkle it with salt and I nibble, nibble, nibble. It tastes of chestnuts at midnight and it tastes of rainwater and of salt and of roses. It tastes of the sun and the wind and of some nameless relishingness born of the summer hillside that grew it. Content is my rarest emotion and I get it at midnight out of a cold boiled potato. <laughs> this is from the New Age, January 31st, 1903. Parties and families who wish a nice dinner on Sat Sunday, or in fact any time through the week, can have their wants supplied by notifying Mrs. Slocum at 316 West Park. She is conducting a private boarding place. Her meals are absolutely the best to be obtained in the city, and the bachelor should not fail to give her a call occasionally. <laughs> From the Butte Heritage Cookbook, 1976. 
The Finnish boarding houses were well known. It took a special kind of woman to handle the hard work involved in feeding the men in the boarding houses. When dinner meals were finished, tables were set with evening snacks of bread, meat, cheese, fish, coffee cakes, and a Finnish yogurt called Vili. When this had been cleared away, preparations got underway for the afternoon shift meals and the graveyard shift lunches. At 4 a.m., the tables were set for breakfast, which began at 6 o'clock. Anaconda Standard, February 4, 1901. Diary of a Boarder. Monday, roast beef for dinner tonight. I ate to beat the Dutch, a treat, that's, that, a treat like that's unusual, we don't get many such. Tuesday, the aftermath we've garnered of yesterday's delight. From that fine roast they gave us some nice cold cuts tonight. Wednesday, that luscious roast of Monday is lingering with us yet. Twas served to us this evening disguised as beef croquette. <laughs> Thursday. It seems Miss Skimp's investment in roast was not so rash. As we supposed, this evening twas served as hash. Friday, today we were all, today we all were grateful to get a little fish. No beef we hope remaining to form another dish. Saturday, ah me, tonight we greeted once more our dear old friend, the beef bones boiled for pottage, well this must be the end. <laughs> Sunday, gee whiz, this beats the record. Last Thursday's hash, oh my, with crust and raisins added is served as minced meat pie. <laughs> From the Anaconda Standard, April 6, 1895. Matzo meal, macaroons, and all kinds of kosher meats and sausages at Herman's Delicatessen Store, 120 West Park Street. Mail orders are promptly attended to. From the Butte Evening News, March 13, 1909. Kosher dinners becoming a fad. The Jewish restaurant is located on the edge of the twilight zone. All who have the price to pay for a meal are welcome. Most of the patrons of the place are the Russian, Austrian, and Polish Jews, and the Yiddish of New York. Last night, the dinner, which cost only half a dollar, started off with salt herring, followed with noodle soup. The piece de resistance was roast duck. There was no butter, chicken fat taking its place, horseradish mixed with beets. The place is not maintained in any degree of style. It is, however, clean, and there is sawdust on the floor. Myron Grinnick, Footsteps on the Stair, 1950. As Baba Middlestein grew older, Nettie thought she should do less work and engaged another cook. But Moses missed Baba's old country dishes to which he had grown so accustomed. The new cook did American recipes very well, but she knew nothing about the preparation of borscht, kreplach, stuffed chicken's neck, cholent, mama leech, simsis, and gefilte fish. She had no feeling for eggplant, and her noodle soup was indifferent. After a week, Moses ordered Baba to resume the daily cooking. The American cook, who liked to prepare fruit salads, was annoyed and petulant, threatened to leave, and finally did, going to some other modern household where fruit salads were held in high esteem. <laughs> 
Hennessy's Hints for Housekeepers, 1898. Food that makes brains. Almonds give the brains muscle food. Juicy fruits develop more or less the higher nerve or brain. Apples supply the brain with rest, and prunes afford proof against nervousness. A series of items from the Anaconda Standard and other newspapers. August 20th, 1900, the man who hasn't eaten a dish of noodles hasn't been in Butte long. <laughs> Maywa Noodle Parlors, importers fine teas, noodles, chow, chow soi, and my way I'm so sorry, Maywa Company, 119 Corner Mercury the Alley. From the Butte Daily Post, 1902, Shanghai Noodle Parlors, importers of fine teas, Chinese and Japanese fancy goods, Huan Huing and Company, 28 West Mercury. Butte Minor, 1909, Peking Noodle Parlors, 117 South Main Street, finest noodle parlors in the West. New and elegant, good service. Anaconda Standard, May 20th, 1906. Queer spots in Butte number 10, Chinatown. It was not many years ago, comparatively speaking, that the people of Butte learned that Chinese noodles made good eating. And as the trade developed, a number of noodle parlors were opened in various parts of Chinatown. Almost from the beginning, these were favored with good patronage, and from a little beginning, the noodle habit has grown into a thing of large proportions. On crowded nights in these places, society people touch elbows with the people of the lower world without comment or without noting the incongruity of the situation. For in a noodle parlor, the conditions are democratic. <coughs> From the Anaconda Standard, December 14, 1902. Hundreds of young girls in Butte can talk intelligently about noodles and how and where they are served. So can as many young men. But very few, however, can say while they sit in Sunday school with their prayer books in their hands that they like noodles. It's the fun and adventure that appeal to them. <laughs> Anaconda Standard, August 17, 1905. <clears throat> Do the noodles served in noodle houses conducted by Chinese and youth contain an opiate? This is a question that many persons are endeavoring to answer. Noodle houses do a thriving business, being patronized by hundreds of persons every night. And those who have been toying with the game continuously have cultivated an appetite for the seductive nude that, that they find it difficult to overcome. Like the tobacco, opium, cocaine, and morphine habits, the noodle habit grows on them. When they first began to eat noodles, the appetite is not strong. But by and by, the craving becomes so intense that a dish of noodles must be swallowed before going to bed. It is a soothing nightcap for them. Montana Standard, January 15, 1933. Louis Weiwei, who for 40 years entered, catered to the jaded appetites of Butte's nightlife with succulent Chinese dishes, in his noodle joint, 
and China Alley is gone. A vain hope that his presence may somehow stave off the Japanese invasion that threatens his property and all northern China has sent him hurrying homeward. A home that he left 70 years ago and to which he has returned only twice to visit his wife. Friday, he drove in a taxi cab to the Chinese cemetery on Montana Street. With him, he carried plates of roast pork, lychee nuts, bamboo sprouts, roast duck, and chicken. Then solemnly, he went from grave to grave where many of his friends of former years are buried, making his farewells. On some of the graves, he placed plates of food. Next week in Seattle, he will board a ship, China bound. Our cookbook, 1912. Our cookbook was compiled by the Ways and Means Committee of the Marion White Arts, Crafts, and Clubs from favorite recipes of its members. It is offered as an everyday aid in the kitchen that it may lighten the task of preparing good things for those whose physical welfare is largely in the hands of the cook. Every recipe has been tried and not found wanting in good results. Those who are exact and faithful in their efforts will be rewarded with success. William Ludy, Cutting Out the Frills, 1912. After a great deal of thought and careful planning, we have applied the widely popular self-serve cafeteria idea to groceries. And as a result, we introduced to the public something entirely new, Ludy's Marketeria, where Ludy's reliable groceries are obtainable at such low prices as are only possible by cash dealing and personal shopping. Kent Ludy, Ludy Brothers Marketeria, 1978. The self-service concept required uniform packaging. Well do I remember the great artistry to be found at the Marketeria's wrapping and checkout counter. The assembling of cans, bottles, and cartons Tightly wrapped in strong craft paper and tied securely with sturdy cord required skill and experience. I recall the fascination of customers with the speed and skill of the clerks who, after rapidly completing their parcels, with great dexterity attached the handle with an added flourish and pleasant comment. Butte's strong husky men appreciated the lower prices of self-service and gladly carried heavy packages using for five only five cents the electric street railway to take them home. Montana Standard, August 18th, 1933. The unconquerable spirit of the Old West as well as the dauntless opt optimism that has made Montana great will be exemplified today when the new Skag Safeway store opens. On the northeast corner of Park and Montana streets, Skaggs which came into Montana in 1924 as the purchaser of Looney. Interest has won its way until it now has 50 stores in the state. This new store is truly ultra-modern. The fruit and produce department offers the finest to be had anywhere. Fresh, well-kept produce will be on sale not many hours after it is picked. This service is made possible only by Safeway's distribution system, which allows fast refrigerated express cars operating on passenger schedules to bring fruits and vegetables into our stores as fine as they left the grower. From the Butte Miner, October 25th, 1917.
Food Pledge Week begins Sunday, October 28th. Opening day will be marked by war food conservation sermons by the country's 100,000 ministers. The Food Pledge is not, Food Administration officials pointed out today, an effort to get people to eat less, but to substitute those foods of which the country has an abundance for those that are urgently needed by the peoples of the allied countries in Europe and their armies and ours. Alfred, <coughs> Alfred Atkinson, Montana Food Administrator, Butte Minor, February 21st, 1918. Voluntary observation of food regulations is not an ignominious failure in Butte. We have just finished checking in stores and butcher shops of Butte. In the stores we have found a very large percentage who are selling approved substitutes for flour, and it is a certainty that the persons who purchase these substitutes are not throwing them in the sewer. We have reason to believe that they are using them. The statement that 80% of the housewives of youth are not observing the food re regulations is ridiculous. Butte Minor, July 11, 1918. 16 complaints were signed yesterday by Inspector Jack Reardon of the City Health Department against local boarding houses who are alleged to have been serving meat and sugar in violations of the regulations of the Food Administration. Three examples. Silver Lake Hotel, flagrant violation of food laws, sugar bowls on the table, and boiled beef sold. Mrs. Gregg, 605 North Main Street, sugar bowls on the table, and roast beef served. Seemed to think it a great joke. Mrs. Horton, 17 West Copper Street, beef and four lumps of sugar with a cup of tea or coffee. Butte Minor, December 16, 1917. Mr. Ludy, chairman of the Merchants Division of the Silver Bow County Food Administration, said the four divisions, the merchants, the housewives, the bakers, and the hotel and restaurant men need aid. Mr. Ludy dwelt particularly upon the necessity of immediately suppressing conflicting stories and untruthful statements. As an instance, he declared that a persistent rumor had gained considerable credence in the city to the effect that proprietors of local Chinese laundries, restaurants, and noodle parlors had stored up vast quantities of sugar. Mr. Ludy ridiculed those who gave credence to the story. Brian Leach the city that ate itself, 2018. The first of many Meterville clubs opened in the 1920s, and most, most of them served elaborate Italian meals, consisting of antipastos with caviar, crudités, salami, smoked salmon, anchovies, and breadsticks. A second course with salads, spaghetti, and raviolis, and a third course with a piece of chicken or an enormous steak. By the 1930s and 1940s, non-Italians had become used to going to Italian restaurants. Sigrid Arni, quote, famous steakhouse serves 21-inch cut fixings, unquote, from the Scranton Tribune, August 1942. There's a steak place outside Butte which reminded me of old Diamond Jim Brady. Legend says Diamond Jim tackled the day only after he'd stowed away 24 eggs and various other groceries. 
Diamond Jin developed quite an area south of his equator living like that, <laughs> but it's that southern vacuum you envy when you get into Meterville Rocky Mountain Club. The place is deceptive. It's no Broadway glitter place. Little booths line the dance floor. You eat in the booths. The West is addicted to eating in booths. Otherwise, I suspect they were there to hide the shame of the Eastern sissies who pass out after surround, surrounding a steak. You tell the waiter you want a steak. Well, what kind? T-bone, sirloin, or New York cut? They all cost a dollar fifty. The first thing that happens is the hors d'oeuvres. There were two of us at the table for four. The hors d'oeuvres covered the whole table, and I don't know what they do when they really get four customers. Probably ask you to hold the dry items on your lap. The hors d'oeuvres were these, Russian caviar, the real stuff, salad with real French roquefort in the dressing well. There was celery, salami, anchovy smoke, salmon, crab cocktail, sweet pickles, and all of them in old, on old-fashioned dinner plates. Montana hasn't heard about salad plates yet. Then came the steaks. We chosen tenderloins. I was thinking of those neat little things. This thing, well, remember the old-fashioned muskmelons? Teddy's tenderloins were that size. The T-bone are also something out of this world. I measured one. It was 21 inches long, and these tenderloins dripped with mushrooms. I'm an eastern steak eater, so I dug in my knife good and hard, and it nearly threw me. The knife slipped through it like it was cutting whipped cream. <laughs> The Missoulian, October 29, 1925, Cousin Jack's song with a Kipling-esque meter. You can talk of beef and pork when you think of knife and fork and discuss the food you'd like upon the table. Of good grub, I never lack, but as I'm a Cousin Jack, I'll eat pasties just as long as I am able. I like noodle soup and fish many times these days, I wish. I could get a little sauerkraut and beer. But when hunger makes me weak to the pantry, uh, then I sneak to find a pasty that will give me cheer. French chefs in Greek cafes I have dodged for many days. I like simple food and lot of it for mine. I don't care a whoop for style. If you want to make me smile, shoot a pasty to me when it's time to dine. <laughs> Copper Camp, 1943. A pasty is a thing of beauty and nourishment to body and soul. Serve it piping hot with lashings of brown gravy, and it would indeed be an incurable dyspeptic who could not consume three or four at a single setting. Served cold as a midnight snack or at a luncheon, a pasty always speaks for itself. Fortunate indeed is the miner so steeped in connubial bliss as to possess a better half who in her loving care as a token of her affection places a pasty or two in the lunchbox of her minor spouse. From the Butte Minor, June 17, 1925. Yesterday's attendance at the Minor Rex Cooking School was 2,000. And because of the interest that today's program has created, it is expected that it will be impossible to accommodate all who wish to be initiated into the art of making pasties. The preparation of this famous Cornish dish will be thoroughly explained by Miss Jeanette Byer, who will make the pasties under the direction of Mrs. John Hill, a recognized expert. From the next day, June 18, 1925, 
asking for questions and suggestions from the audience, the question as to what constitutes a real Cornish pasty arose. Mrs. Fred Oates, a charming Cornish woman with not only the gift of making pasties, but the gift of humor, volunteered a few remarks upon them. She said that a Cornish pasty is made with regard to what the maker has to put in it. A little parsley and a bunch of green onions from her own garden, a bit of veal, and if on hand an egg broken into the top of the pasty may be used, she said. She invited any who desire to learn how to make pasties to call at her home on Washington Street. While Mrs. Oates was talking, Mrs. Hill was cutting onions and potatoes with an expertness that amazed even thoroughly experienced cooks. One woman wanted to know if suet might be used for the pasty crust. Mrs. Hill objected that it would make it a little tough, but Mrs. Oates gave the reason that suet is not used in Cornish pasties. In Cornwall, she said, the pasty is the piece de resistance of the miners' dinner lunch bucket lunch. Cold suet, she suggested, is not very palatable and something that a Cornish miner would not care for at noon when he stopped to eat his lunch. Mrs. Oates was given a veritable ovation from her delighted hearers. Copper Camp 1943. Unique were the miners' lunch periods as enjoyed hundreds of feet underground. The lunch hour on both the night and day shifts began the instant the shift boss and foreman took the cage for the surface and ended when they were again lowered into the mine. The miners congregated in groups for the meal hour and usually found a cool, dry place in the fresher air on the sills of the level away from the dust and gases of the stopes and raises where they worked the shift. Mixed among the groups of underground diners might be Native Americans from all points of the country, with Finns, Irish, Serbs, Cornish, Swedes, Norwegians, Welsh, Canadian, Scotch, Manxmen, Italians, Poles, Austrians, and perhaps an old Mexican or Chilean miner. And as variegated as the nationalities, were the different foods laid out in front of each other. It was undoubtedly these underground lunch hours and the interchange of food that has made Butte one of the nation's most cosmopolitan cities in its dining taste. The end. <laughs>